0: Here we are back for the second episode of Series 9 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. Last time we introduced Ovid's Metamorphoses and looked at the beginnings, the creation or formation of the world, the four ages of human life, and then the first example of human behaviour, the wicked, irreverent Lycaon, who was then transformed into a wolf becoming, in fact, what he had been all along in his behaviour, a vicious, bloodthirsty predator. We heard the story of Lycaon as Jupiter was relating to the assembled deities his complaints about the evil actions going on among the people of the Earth. We join him now as he picks up after Lycaon's story. Punishing Lycaon wasn't enough, Jupiter tells the assembled deities, he wants to wipe out the entire world. One house has fallen, he says, but there are more houses that should come down. When he finishes speaking, many of the assembled crowd loudly voice their support. Yes, exterminate the brutes. And others sit silent, a kind of silent approval. But, but there are reservations. With no human beings left on earth, That would mean there would be no one to offer up incense and sacrifices to the gods and goddesses on their altars. It's an early example of the gods motivated by very human self-interest. We will lose all the glory we now get. But there is a less self-seeking side to this. They're worried, more commendably, that there would be no one to care for the earth. The wild beasts would roam free and and destroy everything. No, says Jupiter. Don't worry about that. I'm going to create a new race of people, unlike those people I'll wipe out. They'll be born, you'll see, they'll be born through a miracle. And, And here's a moment of suspense. He's mentioned a miracle. What will that be like? Ovid is here pushing us forward to the next story, or rather rather to the story that follows the next story. First comes the flood, then the miracle. But here's something that occurred to me. If Jupiter is going to try again with a better model for humans, is he admitting that he got it wrong the first time? Or maybe he's just suggesting that whoever it was who created the first model did a bad job? It's a rare moment in the Metamorphoses when we see a god or goddess admitting that something divine has gone wrong. So how is he going to destroy the world? He thinks about using his great weapon, the lightning bolt, but he backs off at the last minute because that might cause a catastrophic disaster, creating devastating fire that might just reach to the god's dwelling and spread its ruin there. He decides instead to cause a flood that would wipe out human life also most other life by the way and the description of the flood gives us the first of ovid's spectacular surreal scenes there's not just rain from above but jupiter's brother neptune god of the seas calls a conference of uh, calls a conference of all the rivers on earth and tells them to overflow their banks and flood the land that way too So we have rain pouring down harder than ever before, and rivers overflowing, and earthquakes. Neptune is also god of earthquakes. These natural disasters become more real to us today, of course, as we move each year closer into the climate crisis of our time. So perhaps Ovid's playful descriptions might be a little disturbing rather than pleasing to us. I don't know because there are not just wild scenes of nature, but witty paradoxes. People are rowing in boats over the land they had just been ploughing. They're floating over fields of grain and over their own roofs. That's supposed to be playfully ironic, but I'm not sure it seems that way to us today. We've seen real examples of this sort of thing. Some people are going fishing and catch the fish enmeshed in the leaves of tall elm trees. Ships get tangled in vines. Seals swim around where there should be goats. The whole world seems upside down, topseltiri. It seems we have returned to the primeval chaos. Are we in a mythic story where you have to let go of the ordinary order of things and return to chaos before you can effect a new creation? Is this a mythic drama illustrating in vivid detail what happens in any creative process? But not everyone was destroyed. It's not clear whether Jupiter had planned that this one couple should survive, or they survived by good luck, or skill, or what, but there was one couple who survived. The virtuous Deucalion and his equally virtuous wife Pirah. We see them in a boat, and finally landing on Mount Parnassus, the peak of which presumably was still sticking up out of the flood waters. This is the mountain, Parnassus, this was the mountain, as we might recall, that was the home of the Muses, that is, the place for inspiring new creations. Deucalion is the son of the titan Prometheus, and Pyrrha the daughter of Prometheus' brother Epimetheus and it is sometimes implied of his wife Pandora. In any case, they are cousins, but also married, and in fact they form one of the very few happy marriages in the Metamorphoses. Their harmonious relationship is echoed in the harmonious echoes in the poetry. One man survived out of so many thousand men, one woman out of so many thousand women. Deucalion and Pyrrha are also rare as two of the very few genuinely pious couples, contrasted here to Lycaon's impiety and all those in the evil old world like him. The first thing they do when they come to land is to pay homage to the gods and nymphs and to Themis, the goddess of prophecy, the one in charge at the moment of the Delphic oracle there. Jupiter notices that these two have survived the swirling waters and, pleased, calls off the storm clouds and soon the earth begins to appear again. Neptune also calls off his troops and instructs his henchman Triton to give the appropriate blasts on the shell he uses as a horn and to order a kind of military retreat, all the waters returning to their proper course. The flood is over. And we are, almost without being aware of it, in the midst of the next story. So there are Deucalion and Pyrrha, standing on the mountainside, overlooking the now re-exposed land, and seeing that no one else has survived. Deucalion turns to his wife to lament the situation as the only ones around, with their survival still in doubt. I don't like the look of those clouds still up there, he says he realizes how precarious life is. How would you have felt, dear wife, if I had perished in the flood? How could you have gone on, alone, in fear, with no one to be there with you? I know that if it were you who perished, I would have thrown myself into the water to drown with you. What are we going to do? We're the only ones left, like little exhibitions of what humanity was like, patterns for people to emulate if there are any people around to do this, it's the will of the gods. So what do they do next? Well, first they sit for a while weeping, but then decide, pious people that they are, to turn to prayer, specifically to Themis, the goddess of the oracle. Maybe she could tell them what to do next. They go through the rituals to purify themselves, sprinkling water over their heads and clothes, and then proceed to the oracle. They find it covered in moss and the sacred fires no longer lit. Well, of course, they'd been covered in water. Well, then, at the steps of the temple, they prostrate themselves, kiss the stones, and pray together for counsel from the goddess. She's moved by their pious sincerity and desperation and gives them an answer. But alas, the oracle's pronouncements are never direct, always ambiguous making the recipient have to think in new ways rather than just mindlessly go off and mechanically follow instructions. She tells the couple to leave the temple, cover their heads and loosen their belts, and then throw the bones of their great mother behind their backs. The two of them sort of stand there in amazed silence. Pyrrha is the first to speak. No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to desecrate my mother's bones. Please forgive me, but I couldn't do this to my mother's ghost. So that's that. And now they're no further forward. Or, or wait, maybe the oracle means something else. Deucalion hits on a possibility, speaking gently, comforting Pyrrha, who's still upset and offended at the suggestion of throwing her mother's bones over her shoulder. Maybe, Deucalion says, maybe it's not literal bones and not literally our mother's. Oracles wouldn't tell us to do something unholy. Don't we sometimes call the earth our great mother? And then couldn't we say that her bones are the stones in the earth? Maybe that's what we're supposed to do, toss the stones over our shoulders. This seems a long shot, but why not give it a try? It wouldn't hurt. Or as Ovid says in Latin, quid temptare no it, what would it hurt to try? So, okay, they, they cover their heads, untie their robes, and still not really expecting anything to happen, they throw some stones over behind them. It's not specified what kind of stones these were. Small stones you could hold in the palm of your hand, or big rocks you need two hands to lift up. N- no, we don't know, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that we are now at another moment of metamorphosis, of transformation. For as the stones hit the ground, they begin to change. First they become softer, then they change shape and grow larger, becoming less rigid, less stony than stones. And soon their changing shapes begin to look more and more like human beings, but not quite, sort of like statues just roughly formed, no finishing touches yet that's a marvel, the miracle Jupiter had promised. But Ovid goes further and offers a sort of anatomically correct account. The damp, muddy surface of the stones turned to flesh. The solid rockiness became bones. The veins in the rock became human veins. The stones that Deucalion threw behind him became men. The ones tossed behind became women. Well, that's neat. And thus, the promised new race of humans has come into being. We have here what is called an etiological myth, that is, a story about the origin of things. The Khaon story could be an etiological story of the origin of wolves. And here? Well, this is a myth about human hardihood. Ovid says that this story explains why we are such hardy people. We work hard. We can endure a lot of hardship without falling apart. And now we know why. We all came from the stones of the earth, by the goddess's command. So we now have the human race regenerated. What about the other living forms? Ovid now gives us a scientific picture, or rather what might have passed as a scientific explanation in Ovid's time. Various creatures appear by spontaneous generation. The humidity and the warmth of the earth work together to produce new creatures. It's the principle of the discords concordia, or the harmony of discordant things, the unity of diverse things, in this case, the heat and moisture. Out of a discourse concordia, all manner of things can arise. All the animals we know now, for instance, but also an assortment of monsters, deformed or otherwise weird and threatening creatures. Now, one of the worst of these monsters was the python, a huge dragon-like thing spreading its filth all across the mountainside until it was slain by the arrows of Apollo. It took a thousand arrows to do this job, and it was the first time Apollo used his weapons in anger, having previously shot arrows only for hunting. Let's leave aside the question of why a god needs to kill a deer for food. Killing the python was a valiant deed, and Apollo, seeking glory like all the classical heroes, determined to celebrate his mighty deed by instituting the Pythian Games, a series of athletic competitions like the modern Olympics, held every four years. And the winner would be crowned with oak leaves. Any Roman would know that they should have been crowned with a laurel wreath, but the laurel tree had not yet appeared. That will be the etiological point of the story that follows, which we'll consider in the next podcast. See you there.